I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. I think I asked you if you wanted a massage. In my memory, it was more like inviting you to massage me, to enter into a place of intimacy that we hadn't had in quite a while. I had no clue it was leading to that. I remember my hands trembling as I touched first your shoulders and then down your back. Yeah, I wasn't sure what I was really open for. All I knew was that I was really longing for your touch, to be close again, to find some kind of communion and connection. You weren't facing me, facing away. I think that made it easier that you weren't entirely seeing me that you were feeling my presence. I remember that putting me at ease. There had been so much shame. My head was down, my belly flat on the bed, open and yet hesitant, curious. I really longed for your touch. It felt good. There weren't words exchanged. Not too many directions. Not too many sentiments. And who knows how and what to do in this space. I'm not sure how long it had been. I'm sure you knew how many days since we had had sex, connected. That wasn't in my mind. It was the farthest thing from it. I wanted safety. To feel safe in my body and safe in your arms. How to make those two things meet. (laughs) For clarification, I hadn't been counting down the days. I hadn't been somehow or another tracking on a monthly calendar. I just knew that it felt like forever since we engaged since we were intimate since we had anything like deep or meaningful connection that went beyond the arguments the fights the reasonable questions and the repair building of practical steps i was not also counting down the days and maybe i was teasing in that as well but there was a recognition that it had been a length of time. And what touch, what nearness felt good to us both. We had shared the same bed. We had held each other. But taking that next step of having sex and being intimate in that way, it felt like how do we cross that chasm? How do we repair that? 
I think this is such a vital question um, for so many people, not just people who have gone through infidelity. And of course, we can define infidelity in so many different ways. That's probably one of the great inequities of traditional affairs is that they're defined in a very narrow uh, way, sexual encounters. And yet I, I think that if we're honest, if monogamy is really a fulfilling of agreements, infidelity is a breaking of agreements, any agreement. And so the infidelity may not be something like an affair. It could be something as simple as I've been lied to or you've deceived me or any number of things that we thought we were agreeing on. And now here we are, there's a breach of trust. How do we learn to entrust ourselves to each other again after an infidelity? Yeah, there's an unfaithfulness of an agreement. So I like that you're parceling that out because it can look a lot of different ways. It can be someone stuck in an alcoholic kind of trap where I didn't know this was part of you. You're not faithful to the agreements that we set up at the beginning of this relationship. It can be a spending, uh, you know, addiction. And they're not all addictions, so I don't really know why I'm saying that. But I think the idea is that any way that we show up where we're not faithful, right, to the agreements that we set. And we have this idea that when we start relationships, uh, that we agree on most things, right? And we call these, right, implicit agreements, things that we don't talk about. Well, sure, you won't spend all of our money in our bank account, right? <laughs> we agree that we probably won't do that. And then we're shocked when that happens in relationship. And what do we feel? There is a breach of trust, uh, an infidelity like you're talking about. And so it happens in lots of different ways. Um, in our relationship, right? It happened in, in other relationships outside of ours, but it can happen in a million different ways. Right. And of course, there's something that is unique to sexual infidelity um, that breaks so many different kinds of agreements by the time that particular thing occurs. So there is kind of a weightedness to that, of course, I think that is different than, you know, well, he, he said he was going to the grocery store and, and really he went to Ace Hardware. Um, obviously, there is a prioritization on that chart. This feels like a major breach, but, but whatever the facts are, how it feels to you, how it leaves you feeling in your relationship is really the important thing. If there's a breach of trust, if there is uh, now a lack of intimacy due to a breaking of agreements, implicit or explicit, suddenly we've got an issue, an intimacy issue. Yeah. I like here we're talking about that because it, it fits on anyone's kind of spectrum of relating. Brene Brown calls um, this uh, comparative suffering. When oh gosh, I haven't had this experience like Rainier and Christy. Like I haven't had this infidelity, so I can't really speak to that. But every time my husband uh, does leave the house, he actually doesn't go where he says he's going. So that's going to feel just as big because your world is holding that. Those little infidelities along the way, they do matter. And so I really appreciate how you said it's going to feel different to everyone based on their story. So don't compare your story. Your story is unique to yourself. And so 
We've all experienced ruptures in relationship based on a breaking of agreement. What's Mary Oliver say? Tell me of your despair. I'll tell you mine. Mm. And I think that that is the reality that every relationship will at some point in time cross the Rubicon. There will be a breach of trust, maybe a series of breaches. There will be a moment when you look and you say, the person across from me is not, in fact, the person I thought they were. And actually, if you're lucky, that will happen. By that, I mean we're always changing. There's always a shifting that occurs. And sometimes that shift can be very fast or sometimes we can be very asleep and we don't notice those changes. So then one day we wake up, we look over and we say, huh, again, to quote Mary Oliver, who she wrote a, a beautiful poem called The Whistler. It's like, after being married to the same person for many, many years, she hears her whistling. And she says, who is this whistler? How did you get to be in this house? I, I don't recognize you. you. You've whistled this whole time and I haven't. No, you, you only started whistling. Oh my gosh, who are you? And I think that that too kind of constitutes a breach of trust, even though it's a fairly normal thing that we experience. I guess I'm trying to say in all of these things to normalize the experience of an erosion of intimacy that I don't know you. I don't know you quite as well as I thought I did. And I don't know if I trust you anymore. Yeah. We often fall asleep in relating to others and we become self-focused or routine-focused or schedule-focused or kids uh, become the thing that we really hone in on. And so we're walking around uh, in our homes or in our lives asleep to one another. Even right? To ourselves. And sometimes we give ourselves permission to change, but maybe not the person we're in relationship to. And so oftentimes people will say, this isn't the person that I married, or this isn't the person that I agreed to be in relationship with. And isn't that funny that we would expect that person to be the same? So it does feel like a betrayal often because we wake up one day and we think, who are they and who am I? So many different kinds of betrayals here. And you find yourself in it. And whether it's a, a physical affair or whether it's a, a going to sleep and waking up next to a stranger moment, whatever those are, suddenly when you wake up, suddenly when there is a crack in the ice and you realize, oh my God, things are not as they seem. Now, you don't feel like being intimate. You don't feel like putting your hand in their hand. You want to be with them. You want to uh, go forward. You want to figure it out. But the thrill is gone. You don't know how to, to uh, do what Marvin Gaye said, you know, sexual healing. Like mm -hmm. you, you don't know how to make that happen. How do I do this? How do I get from point A to point Z here? I want to, but I have no clue. Yeah. This idea of erotic recovery, that is um, what Tammy Nelson talks about in her book, New Monogamy, is erotic recovery. How do we take this event that is so traumatic and learn from it? How do we grow from it? How do we expand on it and open up? It's difficult. Um, and Bessel van der Kolk talks about the body remembers, keeps the score. So we have a traumatic event. Our body's keeping the score. Our, our minds remember. 
And we're also being called, right, to create something new and not stay in the past. It's so confusing. (laughs) It is so confusing. Uh, Just last night, I was hanging out with some really, really old friends. And we were telling some, some, quote, fond childhood stories, which as soon as we got into them, we kind of realized they were not, in fact, fond childhood stories for all of us, that, that there was, you know, a jostling for, for position among, among a friend group. There was teasing. There was picking on. And one particular guy there um, who, you know, we're just all such close old friends, but as we were talking, he, he actually started to, to uh, get down in the face. And he made this really interesting statement. He said, how is it possible that I have gotten over these things? I've forgiven, I've moved on, but right now in my body, it's like I can feel it happening all over again. I'm getting tense, I'm getting agitated. I'm even getting angry at you guys, even though I'm not, even though I know I've sufficiently moved on. And I think that's such a great illustration about how the mind can really move forward, but the body remembers. Yeah, what a really great self-aware friend. That's an amazing moment that that he, they were able to sit in that and bring that up. And it's so applicable to what we're talking about in this circumstance. Yeah, the mind, the desire wants to move forward or create something new, whether you stay in relationship or not. And I think that's something that comes up is you get those choices, right? Like, is this a relationship I want to invest in? I I understand that there are places that I need to grow and at the same time uh, expand in my own understanding. So how do I take that next step? Honesty is the first step in right, this erotic recovery, honesty. And in this story of opening up to touch, honesty, will you touch me? What feels good? What feels safe at that moment? What comes up for you? What's holding you back? We have to be honest with ourselves and then being able to share that with our partner, our person. I think that here also, there's got to be an awareness of your own experience as you're being honest. So you're being honest on one hand, you're being direct, but you're also aware of the emotions that are occurring for you and what they're motivating you to do. I think that's really important. For instance, if I have the emotion of fear come up, um, or actually, let's go with what was really occurring in my case. I was having the emotion of shame. So shame is an emotion that we experience when we do something or in fact have become something that takes us out of congruence with our stated values and our chosen community. Well, check and check. As it turns out, I had done things that compromised who I thought I was in the world. And in fact, it took me out of congruent relationship with you. So shame was an appropriate emotion. Now, what did the shame prompt me to do? Because right here, this is a very important question. Every emotion is pushing us towards a certain kind of action. It's motivating us to action. Shame's no different. Shame really is an invitation often, and often 
in profoundly harmful ways, to hide. That's one of the potential actions of shame. Hide, cover it up, run away, back off. And so in this case, I'm feeling the emotion of shame. And what do I want to do? I want to disengage. I want to hide. Now, with every emotion, you have to ask, okay, first, is it justified? Does it fit the facts? And as we said, yes, it certainly did. But now, is what it's asking me to do, prompting me to do, is that effective? Is that really the outcome I want? And in this case, for me, it wasn't. You invite me into this place of of touch, of something more than what we've experienced before. Candles are lit, lights are low, and I'm, I'm touching your back. And I'm having this impulse to cut it short. Well, that was fine. See ya. Is that actually effective to what I want? No. So I actually have to, knowing my emotion, knowing my goal, do the opposite of what this emotion is informing me to do because it's not effective. Yeah. And, and in that moment, like allowing yourself to work through those emotions, right? I love this picture. It's kinesthetic and it's tangible and it's happening. And your body is also working through that emotion of shame. And you're not really getting any negative repercussions because my face is down and I am open to that place. So you're working through that emotion. You know, I I think this situation holds different things for both of us. And I can imagine it being confusing for you in a way and there being complicated emotions present for you. I'm really curious, what was your experience like? Yeah, it was a collision of emotions. I was thinking, is there a singular emotion like you had, like of shame? And I'm sure shame is not the only one. That was probably the loudest that you experienced. But yeah, this collision of fear, confusion, desire, sadness, anticipation. The loudest was probably fear. What will come up for me? Will I want this? Will I continue to be open? Will it feel good? And so that experience of fear, if I put myself in this picture that you've painted for us, if I only stay in fear and not openness, then I can't receive your touch. My mind is in the future with fear. But in that present moment, I'm actually okay receiving your care for me and listening to myself, right? Being honest, that's part of my practice, right? How far will we go listening to myself? It's almost like you were making up the rules uh, as you went. You were really, really trying to listen to yourself and tap into what your experience and your limits moment to moment were. And I think this is really beautiful to think about. Sometimes we draw very, very rigid, one-size-fits-all boundaries, especially when there's a breach of trust. 
well, I'm never going to talk to you again might be an extreme example of that. Or, you know, anytime that you want sex, here's the nine things you're going to have to do to earn it. Now, whatever those things are, we get real, real uh, limited in our focus. And it sounds like you were really able to consolidate your attention to the present moment and to listen to what you were willing to do in the present. Yeah. And I want to say, you know, it's going to be different for everyone. But I noticed for you and I, as we're talking through this, if we would have stayed just in the shame or just in the fear, we wouldn't have been able to experience what was in front of us. Now, sometimes you need more stringent parameters, right? Sometimes you need to say, well, this is only about touch, nothing erotic that leads to sex. I need to feel safe. I know that I need to trust that you will care for me. I need to know um, that the things that we communicate can be held. There are definitely times for those things to show up in erotic recovery. But as we're explaining this particular situation, we are working through our emotions and listening to ourselves and to one another. Yeah. You know, again, with everyone being different, so vital. But the principles are really, really apt, I think, for most people uh, in these situations. Begin to get honest with yourself. What am I available to? Second, let that not be something that is very stretched out or comparative to past or future kind of things. But what am I available to in this moment? What is my present moment experience? And how can I listen to it and amplify it? Yeah. Byron Katie talks about you want a little dread and fear, get yourself a future. You want a little guilt and shame, get yourself a past. But in this moment where we were meeting each other, we were safe and we were okay. And then we took the next step, giving ourselves the autonomy to speak up and to share when it was appropriate. Had you taken your hands off in that moment because of shame, that would have shut you down. Had I let my mind drift into the future and get wild and crazy, right? I would have shut down. In that moment, entering into connection, we were okay. It, it was a beautiful moment. I, I think that we, we both look back and, and remember it. I also remember fear. I also uh, remember this nervous anticipation on my part. Where is this going? And I think the interesting thing for me is there was in that moment a genuine curiosity about what is happening, what is here, what are we doing? Um, there was a newness to it. And so one of the things that doesn't get talked about with erotic recovery a lot is it's not just a recovery of what was. There is oftentimes the possibility for a gain because it is such an effective reset. It is as though you are staring at a stranger and discovering them anew. 
Yeah, this doesn't get talked about hardly at all in terms of unless you're digging into the chapter books, right? Around affairs and how to rebuild. We weren't there in terms of flipping the pages. And so it was anew. And this idea that in affairs, it can ignite things in one another. It doesn't mean that it always does that, but it can. Curiosity, expansion, and a newness to seeing your partner very differently. Hesitantly, curiously, um, also openly. And so you have a new algorithm in your relationship. Now, it does ebb and flow. And it can, some couples that I noticed that I work with, they can feel guilty. Like we had this rush of sexuality afterwards and I feel guilty and I feel like a teenager and how can this happen? Or I don't want this person to touch me and I can't imagine how that will ever happen again, right? It's an ebb and flow and there's no right way or wrong way. In ours, there was hesitancy. And that's where we're dropping in is touch, connection, openness. What will happen? The literature on this often says um, to lose that sense of goal orientation. When you're in this experience, don't get outcome minded, right? You're not in a rush to orgasm. You're not in a rush to, you know, achieve the heights that maybe you once knew. Lose the outcome. Instead, focus on um, the singularity of the experience in the present moment. You know, Sigmund Freud used to talk about this. Yeah, really ridiculous word for it. Polymorphous perversion or perversity. And he actually is talking about uh, infant to toddlers. And what he noticed was that they didn't have um, a fixation on any one specific part of the body. They received pleasureful orientations from every part. They could lavish attention on their elbow for hours. They could, you know, uh, have a fit of giggles over rubbing their eyes, just the same as they might for their genitals. Now, did that mean they weren't receiving what we might call specifically sexual pleasure from their genitals? No, they were. But in truth, the pleasure principle was applied to all the parts. But at some point in time, we start to notice something. We start to notice, oh, there is a unique dopamine payload that hits when I touch this part of my body. So we start to get very outcome oriented and we lose that pleasurable connection to every other part or every other sensation. We become hyper-focused on that one particular outcome. Yeah, so in this particular um, experience, right? to pare it down to just noticing, noticing the other and the sensation, right? That is not outcome-based of, you know, orgasm. It is really being present and bringing connection back to the relationship. That was the thing that was lost. It probably wasn't even orgasm that was lost. A lot of couples, right? They might be engaging in regular sexual exploration. And they're not necessarily connected. So I'm seeing you for the first time. I'm touching your skin in a different way. 
I'm getting connected with myself as well. So this erotic recovery frees you from saying orgasm is the point. Yeah. And that, that really is important. That gives kind of roadmap. My job, your job, our job as a couple, if we have decided to go forward from whatever this breach of trust is, our most important and significant job is in fact to repair and rebuild and reignite the trust. And that happens through shared intimate experiences, whether orgasm is involved or not. I have to begin to learn how to delight in myself and in you again. Yeah. One of the methods in terms of erotic recovery is to set time aside every week for this particular purpose. And it is for discovery and is not goal-oriented. It is connection-oriented. I'm dedicating myself to connecting to you and the ways that feel good on our own terms because I want to repair this both ways, not just the one who has stepped outside of those agreements. It is both people saying we're committed to this, doing those things with intention. And then, of course, it increases. So there will be an outcome, right, of orgasm and delight in that particular way. But that's not the singular focus. Ten minutes since the tequila shots, and already my world is a fire. The man beside me yells, Dos cervezas, mi señor. And my right eardrum rings. I get up. I walk past a large group of Serbian men, pantomiming a bullfight. One of them misses his target, slams near me onto the floor, laughs. I stumble up the stairs, through the saloon-style doors of the banyo, to catch my breath, away from the bloated crowd and the pulse of the speakers. It's three o'clock, Sunday morning, in Mexico. I just can't outrun myself. You think a lot of stupid things in life. You think you can travel enough, meet enough lovers, take enough classes, have enough money, and that it'll work. It doesn't. There's a message on my phone. It's from you. We need to talk. Days of missing each other's phone calls, of missing each other's hearts. I don't know what to say. All I can think is that I'm unsure. So I reply, sure. Instantly, my phone goes white, and then there's that trill of notes. The phone is ringing in the bathroom. I answer, hello. I pause for what seems like an unbearable stretch. And then I just blurt out, I don't know what you're doing or how you're feeling right now, but we have a problem. We have an ambivalence problem. I don't know where it began or who started it but we're stuck. We're stuck in ambivalence. Well, I say, I guess I've got to ask you, do you want to be in this? I mean, do you? Are are you willing to fight for this? Because that's what I need. I'm not even saying you need to be willing. Are you? I think I'm willing to be made willing. You know, um, so much of this concept of erotic recovery is a 
invitation to step beyond ambivalence. Ambivalence, which is really about this sense of uh, kind of a duplicity of mind, right? Yeah, it's one foot in and one foot out. And because I'm not sure if something's going to work, I'm not sure if it's going to go in the direction I want it to go or it's going to have really negative repercussions, I'm stuck. And so I'm teetering on the line of I think and I think not. And that inaction doesn't really allow me to participate in the relationship as it is. Yeah, I like that um, that framing of it. There's kind of a hidden perfectionism or a, a need for a specific certain outcome. And here, the simple truth is nothing is certain. There's no such thing as certainty. But boy, we're addicted to it, right? Yeah, we're scared that we're not going to do it just so by the books or what people think is the right way, or I might let myself down. So I'm not really willing to try much. And I know that I've been stuck there. And sometimes that place can feel so defeating. The thing is, is, okay, so it doesn't work, right? Like if I use that example of the massage, right? It's like, so it didn't work or so it did work, but not doing anything, right? Leads to more confusion leads to more fear. I get to take the next best step. But if I don't take any steps, what's the next best one? (laughs) I don't have any information to base it on besides the way my mind is crafting fear or shame. So I just take the next best step. Yeah, again here, we're riveting ourselves to the present moment. And I think that's, that's the reality, that willingness to be made willing. You're simply putting a foot in the river. And I think the important thing here, sometimes we get very, very down on ourselves. You know, it's like, well, I'm not fully in. Well, perhaps not, but you're still in the river, even if you're only a foot in. And you have to start somewhere. The road to home begins somewhere. And I think that That erotic recovery is really, at times, not a mad dash. It's not a a blitzkrieg here. It's instead um, one foot at a time in willingness. Yeah, and a lot of times we're really wanting that instant gratification, instant resolve, instant healing, instant pleasure, right? This idea that it's not outcome-based, like this needs to happen now, can be so refreshing. I take the next best step and then I learn from it. How did I do? How did we do? Did that feel right for us? What are the things that uh, didn't work and how can we accommodate them? If I get stuck on just outcomes alone, I'll be paralyzed. Mm. It's also important to think of what a realistic outcome is. Right? Is it realistic that I will feel great with a person who has betrayed me for three marathon hours of lovemaking? Probably not. Probably not. Is it realistic that I'll have an enjoyable experience and be able to be in the present moment for 10 minutes? Much more realistic. Yeah. Oftentimes, when helping people through this, 
there is an unrealistic expectation that this should be easy, that this should feel natural, that, ah, I should be over this by now. The idea is that life hits us and is how we respond to it. It's going to keep hitting us. Those things are going to come up for us. It's how we approach them. And so that's just recently something that you and I have been dialoguing about and you've really been teaching about is life is not going to stop. Yeah, it's, it's how I meet life. Mm. We're so addicted to this idea that the work is uh, focused on an end game of retirement, right? We'll work hard enough at the relationship and we can stop working. We can work hard enough at self-healing and someday or another, we're going to be able to, to give it all up. This is just not the truth. Life and the work in whatever domain it is are inseparable for one another. It's a slog. Life is never going to end. It's never going to stop here, right? It's never going to be easy in that sense. There's no good stuff waiting at the end of the rainbow. Life is up and down. It's stop and go. It's a dance. It's a, it's a ride. You'd best get used to it. Maybe even fall in love with it a little bit because, you know, either way, it's going to be there. There's this great uh, Greek myth called the myth of Sisyphus. And it was really how many Greeks viewed human life. And it's the story of a man named Sisyphus who's cursed by the gods to push a boulder up a hill every day of his life. And should he get to the top of the hill at the end of the day, it's reset. And he goes back to the down, to the bottom of the hill, and the next day has to push it back up. An endless grind. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? I mean, that's just how it is. Well, Albert Camus comes along and he asks a really important question in the 1960s. He says, how does Sisyphus stick it to the gods? How in hell does this man say fuck you to the gods? Any ideas? Do tell. He learns to enjoy pushing the boulder up the hill. The gods thought they were cursing him. Little did they know, he fell in love with pushing the boulder up the hill. So there is a quality here of acceptance of where you are in life. Yeah, this moment's hard. I'm not imagining it would be otherwise. I'm not comparing my present moment with a fictitious possibility of something that doesn't really exist, right? Instead, I rivet my attentions to this moment. And by the way, this moment is difficult. This moment is hard. It's hard navigating this space with you. We go out to dinner. We look at each other. Guess what? There's no spark in our eyes. What are we doing here? We're practicing. You know, sometimes yoga doesn't bring profound delight and joy. Sometimes going to work out and work your muscles doesn't, in fact, feel incredibly exciting. I don't come home and high five you afterwards. We do a lot of things at the basis of a practice. We show up to it every day because it actually enhances and makes us stronger. It's not that life gets better. It's that we get better at life. Yeah. And as you're explaining that, this is the part in relationships. We don't want to fall back asleep. When you're doing the work that you're talking about, when you're meeting life on its terms, you are no longer asleep in your life. You're meeting it. You're rising up to it. You're not in that ambivalent phase. There's 
no room for that mediocre experience. So whether I'm saying yes to this moment or recreating a new one, if I'm staying still, then I'm kind of asleep. If I'm willing to talk about how this is affecting me, what I want, what I imagine the future can hold, right? That's the beauty of waking up to saying, life is difficult. How do I step into it? This idea that even when you and I find something in our relationship, like it doesn't mean that we don't keep recreating new agreements that work for us. We don't say, oh, this is, we found this steady spot and then fall back asleep. Yeah, you used to talk about, uh, and maybe you did earlier, uh, even in this episode, but creating and setting aside times to be with each other. And, you know, I think that's so important. I look back at some of those erotic recovery moments and I notice, boy, we really did set aside some times to be with each other. That was really important. Had we done that before? I don't know if we had been conscious of it before, but we started to get conscious of it. We started to, okay. Now here's what's funny. Years have passed. Not too long ago, we're going out on a date night and one of our kids, one of our older kids said, man, you guys sure do go on a lot of dates. Isn't that great? We didn't hit this point and go, whew, okay, hard work done. Hard work done. This was so good. Thanks for coming out. Now we can actually be lazy loves again. Yeah, I think our dating life has increased exponentially today, even so much more than back then. Uh, I told our kids, yeah, you got to keep it spicy. You got to keep it <laughs> spicy, guys. And so this idea that, yeah, erotic recovery is the curiosity to look at someone and be willing to ask those questions, to step into really wanting to know who they are. One of those moments of recognition in that is you told me one time, I don't even think that you're really curious about me. Mm, yeah. And I am sure that was really based on fear because I didn't really know how to hold the places I was unaware of, mm -hmm. right? And in our erotic recovery and our relationship, the more we step into a life that is not ambiguous, but wholehearted, I can hold those things and we can walk in that direction in which curiosity contains exponential growth. How is trust and confidence, which is a kind of trusting, built. You know, confidence in anything is built by repetition. You do something, you try it. I'm thinking of, um, of stage acting. When I was a little kid all the way through high school and some college, I would do stage performance. And I remember my first role very vividly. I was four years old. My mom sewed together this beautiful kind of felt uh, gray costume that I put on and I climbed up the stage and I got into position and I had one line. You know what I was? I have no idea. I was a rock. I was, I was <laughs> literally a rock in the, in the, um, Christmas pageant. That is so cute. It was really cute, but here's the deal. I wasn't Joseph. I wasn't Jesus. I wasn't Mary. I wasn't one of the wise men. I was a rock. 
And my whole job was at some point in time to say, let the rocks cry out some really cute little line. And you know what? It came my time and I missed my cue. And I look over at the curtain and I can see, you know, Mrs. Seliscar and she's standing there and she's mouthing, let the rocks cry out to me. I mean, she's mouthing it. And I remember, I remember, oh, this is my big job. This is my, and I, I wave my hands really big. I get real big, like the, the gray lump of stone that I am. And I raise my hands and I say, let the rocks cry out. Now here's what's so cool. I look out into the crowd and there's my mom and dad and they see me and I see my mom's face brighten up and my dad yeah and he's kind of like plotting grandma's <laughs> so over cute. there and they see and you know they're like snapping pictures they're so proud of me and I get proud I go oh that felt pretty good I had this reinforcing moment that I had to actually step into but that built some confidence so then the second night I didn't miss my cue at all I was ready I wasn't you know dry heaving before the performance I was able to do it and then the next year came and I got cast for a bigger role because I was a little more confident. And across the years, the roles increased. My responsibility increased. I was able to meet them each step of the way on their own terms. I was able to both entrust myself in the moment, and that led to a greater trusting of what was to come. That really is a road to recovery also. You put yourself in the moment. You see what happens. You, you, you have a reinforcing experience or maybe your hand gets burned and you decide, oh, well, that's, I'm not going to touch that again, actually. I'm going to move to a different play. But you continue to have incrementally larger and larger experiences and you build confidence with something over time. That's how healing occurs. But if you never step into it, it won't happen. Yeah. I think that I'm still honestly stuck back into your cute little gray suit. And it's just like <laughs> making my heart so like swell. Um, so in that picture of you and gaining that confidence, I think it's so important to see one another, right? And to reinforce those things. And what a hard thing to do when we're healing is to see the other sometimes as good or as worth it or like to shift our thinking to be generative and just to be kind to the other person and to ourselves in this, like cheering one another on is so essential and so difficult. And oftentimes we're just doing the best that we can. Sometimes we have to be our own cheerleaders, right? I did it. I was the rock, right? (laughs) And reinforce ourselves. Maybe when our partner is unable, but as partners, what a gift we can give when we notice that they've shifted a behavior, they've done something different. Oftentimes, you know, words become cheap. You know, words can be used to manipulate or cause distrust. And so behaviors, when we see them shift, how important, how important to say, I saw that you did that differently. Yeah. I think for me, there is one more thought that's here, and this has to do with realistic expectations, but particularly to the partner who may have had uh, an infidelity that involved a sexual encounter independent of this relationship. And I hear a lot from people who have had these experiences 
and when they return into the relationship they're trying to rebuild, that the sexual encounter just isn't the same. That, oh my God, the sex was so great in the affair. Or, oh God, I know I should enjoy uh, sexual intimacy with my husband, but it's nothing like what happened with the person who was my lover. I hear that a lot. And I think that to some extent, this really is one of those situations where it is unfair to compare the worst of what I know, the person that I've known historically for a long time, to the best of someone who I may not know as well or certainly haven't known as long. In other words, don't compare the person who you've seen their dirty socks with the person who's only shown you their business socks, right? You actually have to kind of compare apples to apples. In fact, this is why riveting yourself to the present moment is so important. Of course the affair was amazing right? Of course it was. You had a giant red button that said, don't push. And you pushed it. Of course it felt good. Forbidden fruit is sweetest, not because the fruit is sweetest, but because it's forbidden. Comparing that to your present relationship is an unfair comparison. Take this experience on its own terms. Allow this experience, if you're committed to it and committed to the rebuilding process, and take this for its own worth, right? Yeah, that idea of fantasy, right? In that moment of the affair, it is very true. It is happening. But how long does that play out, right? This idea of dirty laundry, someone that actually sees your dirty laundry on a a regular basis, they're seeing all these parts of you. You may only be showing up to that diamond type of experience, right? And, and so it is important to make sure that you kind of have a bead on reality and how you're judging the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, comparing uh, longstanding partnerships with new relationship energy is really, really an unfair thing. But I think it's what happens a lot. I think it's one of the main stumbling blocks in erotic recovery at least from the perspective of, of someone who's been unfaithful. Yeah. And if you're able to be curious, if you're able to be curious about your partner in that time of their life, if your relationship can hold curiosity, you might find, right, as um, the partner outside of the infidelity, like you might have been bored as well right? You might be looking for something that is more exciting or exotic or interesting to you. And so you might find that there is something that can be, right, ignited in the two of you. I remember for us really leaning in and saying, oh, we weren't that dissimilar in some of these places. How they uh, looked and how we carried them out uh, were very different. But we also felt lonely. We also felt disconnected. We also felt um, disconnected from our sexual uh, selves. And so if your relationship can hold that in the erotic recovery space that you're at, getting curious about what these connections meant. Yeah, that's right. The, the gift, and, and I know this is 
This is a difficult reframe, but the gift of infidelity in all of its cases is it is almost always an invitation to wake up, to get curious about what's really going on, not just what happened then and there, but actually what's happening right now. And if you stick with that, that thread, that curiosity that you're talking about, one of the possibilities that begins to emerge from that is a new relationship. A new relationship. That is actually one of the reasons why erotic recovery, shared intimacies, beginning to take those steps towards actually having sex again, for instance, in this case, those are, are rebuilding something much larger. They're not just about sex. It's not just about massage. It's actually stepping into new possibility again. Yeah. You said you no longer are asleep. And how could you be? How could you be? Something has shaken your relationship to the core. And you get to figure out what you want to do with it. If it has enough foundation for rebuilding. If you wake up and find that you've been asleep for too long and you don't recognize the person across from you. More often, and I would say the most important, is the individual recovery. Finding yourself. Finding yourself and how you become asleep and how the relationship can catapult you into something new, a new version of yourself, something you can feel proud of instead of feeling mundane or asleep or numb to. The questions, who am I, who are you, and who are we together? Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Uh, line. <laughs> <laughs>